Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we bring you an exclusive interview with Samir Aboud, Associate Professor of Historical and Political Studies at Arcadia University. We talk about his new book, Syria Hotspots in Global Politics. With more than 500,000 people killed and at least half of the population displaced, Syria's conflict is considered the most deadly of the 21st century. In his new book, Professor Samir Aboud provides an in-depth analysis of Syria's descent into civil war, the involvement of regional and international players, and the consequences of the Russian military involvement after the year 2015. Stay with us. Syria had dropped off the headlines in the U.S. media, but a recent offensive against the northwestern city of Idlib is being described as the single largest mass population displacement in Syria since the beginning of the uprising in 2011. The latest offensive against Idlib began in March and has intensified since April 26 as a result of bombardment by the Syrian regime and the Russian forces. The civilian death toll has mounted in and around Idlib in the last few weeks and nearly 300,000 people have fled towards Turkey's border. Fomina's Shahram Aghamir spoke with Samir Aboud, Associate Professor of Historical and Political Studies at Arcadia University. He spoke with him about the latest developments in Syria, the Astana peace talks, and the role of state and non-state actors in the Syrian war. The attacks against Idlib that have started recently are really the culmination of a strategy that the regime and its allies have implemented since the Russians intervened in uh, September 2015. And essentially what happened after the Russian intervention was that people and civilians and fighters in the areas where the regime and its allies were intervening were given the option of essentially staying and pledging allegiance to the regime or leaving to Idlib. And this is what was a kind of simple strategy of displacement. They said, if you don't want to follow us, if you don't want to accept that we are retaking this territory, then you have the option of going to Idlib. And so many of the armed groups actually uh, kind of took this deal and there was a system of kind of passage that allowed them to go to Idlib. And the strategy started in the southern part of Syria and then spread throughout. And so what you had was over the last few years, hundreds, thousands of fighters and civilians who were making their way into Idlib. And effectively, what that did was concentrate all of the armed groups that remained in opposition to the regime. It concentrated them into Idlib. And so you have this concentration of fighters, a concentration of, of armed groups that are uh, still opposed to the regime in Idlib, that it was believed had the, the political and military cover of the Turkish government. This was the kind of Turkish leverage, if you will, in Syria. And it was really understood that the conflict was moving towards a confrontation there in Idlib. And so this is what we're seeing today, essentially, is this uh, kind of inevitable confrontation that has been brought about by the concentration of the armed groups in the province. This is, I don't want to say it's the last frontier for the regime, but in many ways, this is considered, I think, 
to be the last major battle to eliminate the armed groups. The Syrian regime has expanded the territory under its control since 2016, following the Russian military intervention. But the regime does not seem to have the capacity to govern in, in these areas that it ostensibly controls. It faces increasing challenges in providing basic goods and services to the population. Now that the regime has declared victory over the opposition, is it reasonable to think that it is under significant pressure from the segments of the society that are fatigued by the war and are demanding that their economic conditions improve? Absolutely. Uh, one of the major pressures I think that the regime faces and that we don't, we don't consider enough is precisely what you're saying, this sort of internal pressure uh, from uh, not just loyalist communities, because that's a very complicated term, but citizens, communities that are under regime rule. And there's a real sense that the regime has to now provide those services that people have been cut off from for years. And this is part of the the legitimacy of the regime as it returns. You know, this is actually a, a very core question of the legitimacy of the regime. It's not just about having, quote-unquote, liberated the areas from, from the armed groups, but the extent to which the regime is now able to marshal resources into these areas. And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is... Um, two uh, kind of contradictory patterns that I think are going to aggravate this tension. On the one hand, the regime is now ruling through violence, ruling through security. So what you have is, even if there might be an acknowledgement of the need to provide uh, services, the regime is continuing to rely on uh, militia groups, on its own army, on the police force, basically on the apparatuses of violence to keep people in check. And what that means is that there isn't as much attention being devoted to bringing in resources for, say, rebuilding schools or hospitals or whatever. And the second pattern is that based on everything that I understand happening inside of the country and based on what many people that I speak to that come in and out of the country, the regime's reconstruction focuses very much on the cities. And so those geographic and social peripheries of the country that have been really hard hit by the conflict are not going to have a lot of resources devoted to them. And so you have in these areas where the regime is returning, what we have is a kind of rule through violence. And at the same time, the reconstruction policies that are being implemented or that are being uh, kind of imagined are really urban focused. They're not, they're not focused so much on the peripheries. Syrian economy appears to have further deteriorated over the past year. There are acute shortages of fuel, gas, and electricity, even in the capital, Damascus, which has been under the full control of the regime throughout the conflict in Syria. Mm -hmm. Some media outlets have been reporting of disaffection among those who have been supporting the regime during the civil war. Can you talk about the state of economy in Syria as well as credibility of such reports? Mm. I think the reports are very credible because although people may have uh, supported the regime or not supported the opposition, whatever their politics were, there's been a real sense of suffering in the country. I think that you do have the increasing visibility of the elites who had benefited from the war. We see this in many different ways in Syria, but in general, the majority of the population that has remained 
in Syria, especially in and around Damascus, the areas that were under regime control, they've suffered considerably. And I think that the regime's principal economic strategy has been to slowly manage this deterioration so that it's not a collapse, it's more a kind of gradual deterioration. And what that means is that subsidies have been slowly lifted. And when there's too much unrest because of this, when there's a lot of complaining because of this, you have the reintroduction of some subsidies. For example, fuel is a really interesting thing because one of the first things the regime did when the uprising started was to reintroduce the fuel subsidy, was to reintroduce certain food subsidies because it was an acknowledgement that those kinds of uh, market interventions were supportive of the citizens of the populations that were supportive of the regime. And so they've really played this back and forth on the subsidy issue throughout. But the question is where the regime's future fiscal or financial, sorry, resources are going to come from. And everybody that I speak to who thinks about this, who is inside of the country, says that there's just an assumption that the regime's allies will come to its economic rescue. And I don't think that we're really seeing that. So I, I anticipate that what we'll continue to see is this kind of management of, of economic collapse, the introduction, withdrawal of subsidies, uh, and these kind of really band-aid attempts to, to solve what are really long-term economic problems. And I think what that means ultimately is that there will be this continued tension between the regime and especially its urban populations. So let's talk about this expectation that the regime's allies would come to its support. It's mm. estimated that the Iranian regime has spent 12 to $15 billion annually to keep the Syrian regime in power. Iran had also been assisting Syria with its energy needs, uh, since Syria currently has to import around 80% of its energy needs from abroad. Prior to the imposition of sanctions by Trump administration, Iran had been shipping an estimated 1 to 3 million barrels of oil in a month to Syria. But it looks like the U.S. sanctions have adversely impacted Iran's ability to finance the Syrian regime and provide for its energy needs. Well, what's interesting about this is that within Syria, my sense is that many people believe that sanctions or no sanctions, the, the Iranian regime will always be present to to support the regime economically. I think what the sanctions have done have really put kind of stranglehold on that. And I think we see that. This is not uh, a case where sanctions are uh, not working. They're actually uh, working in a very blunt and and uh, destructive way, mostly for the Syrian population. I mean, this is ultimately who is who is suffering from from these practices. But in general, the Syrian regime does not have really much leverage vis-a-vis -vis the Iranian regime or the Russians or Chinese government or any other of its allies. It's not really producing anything to trade. It doesn't have money. It is not really a credible lender at this point. It's unclear how they will generate revenues to pay back all of these loans. What I think what we're seeing is particular patterns where Iranian and Russian companies and increasingly Chinese companies are afforded kind of reconstruction uh, contracts, if you will. These aren't formal contracts in the sense that the government is allowing them, or is, is asking these companies to come in and say rebuild bridges or rebuild hospitals and then paying them. But they're 
providing different ways to funnel, say, public resources like land, for example. So many Iranian companies are actually uh, assuming ownership of land in Syria. They're assuming ownership of existing factories. And so sort of in exchange for uh, the transfer of ownership or the transfer of responsibility for these factories, Iranian companies are coming in and kind of, in a way, investing, if you will, in Syria. And so there's this shift, uh, this transfer of Syrian public resources to companies from many of these countries. And I think that it's very difficult to say that it's it's a trade or it's sort of bartering, but effectively that's what's happening. The the Iranian regime is providing um, different kinds of uh, financial support to the Syrian regime, and what we're seeing is uh, the benefit accrued in these companies. So that's the way to pay back, basically. Es- essentially, yeah. It's very difficult to determine how... It seems to me like it's a very clear deal, you know, that in exchange for these kinds of supports, that there will be Iranian kind of commercial interests increase in Syria. And so we see this, I mean, everything from infrastructural projects to trade and transport, you know, all these sorts of things that you see Iranian companies coming into Syria. And what that's doing is effectively crowding out Syrian business people who are now having to compete with with Iranian companies who are given, you know, essentially given these contracts. So that's essentially the trade-off that's happening. And I think that explains why the Iranian regime continues to provide all of this financial support to the Syrian regime. It's not just a matter of its survival, but there is there's a commercial interest involved there. Much has been said and written about the competition between Russia and Iran in Syria in securing resources in order to exercise more control over the regime and maintain their strategic influence in Syria. What are these exogenous powers seeking to gain in Syria? How would you describe the power dynamics between them? Yeah, I think that to some extent we have to take seriously the tension. We definitely have to take seriously the tension between Russian and Iranian interests. But we also need to take seriously the possibility that their interests are compatible. In the same way that we need to think of the compatibility of Russian and American interests in Syria. Now, it's clear that principally the Russian regime and the Iranian regime have a stake in the preservation and continuity of the Syrian regime. Now, I think that the Russians are more willing to contemplate an alternative leadership structure, but in general, I think that they are committed to the continuity of the regime. I don't think that this is principally, say, an economic competition between Russia and Iran. I think that, you know, I think that there's enough of the pie, so to speak, to go around. And I don't think that their, whatever their military or geopolitical interests are, I don't think that we've really seen an incompatibility there. And I think that if you consider what Israel has been doing over the course of the conflict in terms of its, you know, its attacks on Syria, which have been almost daily. The Russians have really just sort of let this happen and the Iranians have not been able to stop it and have not really been public in their condemnation of it. And I think that's a great example of the way in which Russian and Iranian interests have just found a way to kind of 
lived together on the Syrian battlefield. If we look at the fourth and fifth divisions of the Syrian army, effectively one, the, the fifth division is controlled by Russia effectively. And the Syrian leader of that division is considered by many, his name is Suhail Hassan, is considered by many to be Russia's kind of principal point person inside of Syria. And the fourth division is led by Bashar al-Assad's brother. And, and that is seen as the kind of core of the army that is, uh, if not loyal, at least working with Iran. And I think, again, these are not divisions that are physically fighting each other, but they're different centers of power. Uh, and I think that that's ultimately what's emerging in Syria. And we should not also forget that for the Syrian regime, it's probably healthy for its own stability and security to have Russian and Iranian interests played off one another. And so I think that there are tensions. I don't anticipate that any commercial or economic tensions between the two countries would compromise what has been this kind of battlefield compatibility. And I think that in many ways, on the core issues of regime stability, on the preservation of Syria's geography, on the question of, of Kurdish independence uh, or self-determination, on those kind of broader questions, there, there's actually agreement. And I think that that's what makes, say, for example, Israel's continued military intervention into Syria palatable in some ways to the Iranian regime. Are the Iranians and the Hezbollah militia involved in the Idlib operations? Absolutely. I think that this is, you know, what's what we've seen on the battlefield is that all of these forces that are aligned with the regime, whether it's the 4th Division of the Army, the 5th Division, the militias, Hezbollah, whatever, what they've done is essentially taken on different roles. There has been uh, coordination, but uh, as far as I understand, that the Russian forces only coordinate with certain Syrian actors on the ground and not others. But of course, they all have the same goal. They all have the same military goal and they're all working towards that. And so they are, are all present, I think, in Idlib because there's been a concentration of uh, forces there and it's been understood for many, I mean, many of us have understood since 2015-16 when the strategy was being implemented that ultimately this was going to be the last major battle, if not the last one of the last. Of course, there's also the, the looming question of, of how to deal with Kurdish aspirations uh, in Syria. Samer, last September, Russia, Turkey and Iran agreed to establish a demilitarized zone around Idlib to be patrolled by both Turkish and Russian troops. But the current offensive against Idlib has created tension between Russia and Turkey. In a telephone conversation with uh, Russian President Putin on May 30th, Turkish President Erdogan called for a ceasefire. But on the following day, Moscow pointed the finger of blame at Ankara, saying it was its responsibility to prevent the rebels from firing at civilians and Russian targets. Adding to this complicated mix is Mr. Erdogan's continued brinkmanship, if you like, between the US and Russia, and the reported use of Turkish airspace by Russian military aircraft in order to supply this airbase in Syria with missiles, which is somewhat puzzling. Can you help us understand this murky picture? 
because this is one of those really complicated uh, things in this in the I mean it's all complicated but these de-escalation zones or deconfliction zones were an innovation that came out of the Astana process and it's what's interesting about them is that it also applies to this tri-border area in the southeast of Syria where Syria, Jordan, and Iraq meet, where there's an American military base. And that's precisely the same agreement that the Russian and American military came to in that area. Essentially, I think there was a 55-kilometer radius zone where the Americans exercised control over that area. And whenever any Syrian militias have tried to get in there, they've been attacked by the Americans. And so the the Russians had come up with this idea that you would have geographic areas of the country that would be de-escalated. But the Russians were also really, really brilliant in not only creating these zones where there was not supposed to be any violence, but giving themselves the right to break de-escalation, if you will. And the logic was always, we will not attack these areas if the people in those areas do not attack us. And what we're seeing in Idlib is just really an excuse. Uh, they're saying, oh, well, no, they're attacking civilians, they're attacking us, they started firing, they are the ones that broke this de-escalation agreement. And it's really just, it's silly in a way. I mean, we shouldn't take it very seriously. It's always kind of been understood that they, they were going to break it at some point because they started doing it throughout the country in, in other ways. They would declare these areas uh, de-escalation zones or de-confliction zones and say, nobody's allowed to shoot here, nobody's allowed to bomb here except us. And then it was really really to give them an opportunity to uh, refuel, if you will, their forces. And so I think unlike in the case of the American military in the southeast, which has the capacity to prevent the penetration in the deconfliction zones, the, the Turkish military uh, is not able to. And I would be extremely surprised, shocked, actually, if this was not part of the bargaining of the Astana process that's happening between the countries. I'm surprised the Idlib offensive has taken until this long. I don't see any particular reason why they would have waited until now to start. So I have to believe that Turkish acceptance of uh, Russian-led intervention into Idlib was based on some bargaining or negotiations through this kind of tripartite formula. So you think there might be a tacit agreement between the Syrian and Russian governments? Is it true that Turkish airspace is being used for supplying the, air, the Russian airbase in Syria? I would not be surprised. I, I would not be surprised. So this is somewhat cynical. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, it is really it is really cynical, but I think it reflects the kind of conflict management mechanisms uh -huh. that exist in Syria right now. So the contrast with Astana might be deliberative process. Right. Where you have parties who are negotiating, who might be saying, you know, this is what's on the table. This is what's off the table. There's no such process on offer for Syria. And that's by design. And I think that what happened when the Astana process was created is that it was presented as an alternative to the U UN process. But that was based on the idea of mediation, of deliberation, of a give and take. And that's never been on offer seriously for Syria. And I think that what Astana did was provide a space for the negotiation of 
those kind of shared interests of the three powers to negotiate these major questions. So sure, there's going to be some sort of constitutional committee in Syria. There's going to be election. I mean, we just saw the local elections a few months ago. Like, sure, you know, all these things are happening. You know, to some extent, they're important, but the real bigger picture issues around Idlib, around the future of the Kurdish political elements, these things, I think they're negotiated and agreed upon in Astana. And I don't think if they weren't, then why would the Turkish government not have withdrawn, for example? Then why would the Turkish government have not publicly come out and said, you know, we are no longer committed to Astana, Astana's a joke, and uh, it's sort of the, the war's back on. So I think that what we've seen in the lead up to Idlib is not just a kind of military preparation, but also a political one as well. Because the, I think there's in many ways, and this is of course extremely cynical, in many ways there's almost a perfect trade-off that the, the regime and its allies um, do not want to see um, Idlib kind of continue as this, you know, just a place where there's all these armed groups and whatever. Uh, and the Turkish government does not want the realization of Kurdish political aspirations. And I think it's this um, almost perfect trade-off because what, what happened with the armed groups, if, you know, another way to think about it, of course, is the relationship between the armed groups and Idlib and Turkey. Now, what we've seen uh, since the Russian intervention is that these groups are not really operating independently of the Turkish government. And we've seen um, when they have uh, engaged in, say, attacks uh, in some cases, when they have withdrawn in others, when they have come to uh, Astana, because there have been some groups that have been invited and so on. And a lot of the, the the bigger battlefield and political decisions that were being made by many of these armed groups were not being taken independently of, of, of the Turkish government. And, and so they had effectively transformed into proxies of the Turkish government. And I think that 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 relationship, that hierarchy, that dependence of the armed groups on Turkey for their um, political and military protection was something that Turkey could offer in these tripartite negotiations. That is Professor Samer Aboud speaking with Shahram Aghamir about the role of regional and international players in Syria's eight years war. We'll hear more after a break. Let's deconstruct this notion of peace in Syria. Since you did talk about how the agreement over Idlib was part of the, a broader framework of de-escalation zones that Astana process produced. In your book, Syria, you argue that Astana process could only result 
in what you call Syria's authoritarian peace, quote-unquote. You identify five features of this authoritarian peace. Can you elaborate on that? So one of the questions that I struggled with in writing the book, and I think all of us are struggling to think about, is that as we think the Syrian conflict is winding down, as we see a kind of quote-unquote military victory on the part of the regime and its allies, how can we describe what's happening in Syria? How can we describe the future of the country? It's not peace, and it's not the same thing as the war. And the language that I use is actually um, an academic term from somebody named David Lewis, who poses this problem and says, you know, how do we describe these situations in which you don't have negotiated solutions, you don't have deliberations between warring parties, you don't have these compromises. What you have is really the imposition of of one party on not the other, but you know, on a kind of population, if you will. So that's I, I borrow that language of authoritarian peace to describe the forms of peace that are emerging in Syria, but I don't see them as peaceful. So I don't see what's happening in Syria, what's emerging in Syria as a kind of post-conflict order in which any political aspirations are realized. I don't see it as a place without violence. I don't see it as a place without the kind of economic deterioration and collapse that we were discussing earlier. Rather, I'm seeing it in another way. So I'm, I think that what's emerging in Syria is a post-conflict order in which violence is central, not the opposite. Violence remains very important and we'll see a kind of continued low-level, constant marshalling of violence by the government and its allies. So if we think of Afghanistan or Iraq, they certainly don't have peace in those countries, but they certainly don't have kind of conditions of civil war. And that's really where, where I think Syria is moving towards. I think that because you don't have a reconciliation process, because there is no formal peace process where different communities deliberate. I think you have the persistence of enmity. There will still be a lot of social discontent in the population. And I think importantly, and this is uh, speaks to our previous discussion, that the Syrian regime will no longer have kind of autonomy and decision making, that now it is effectively ceded much of its sovereignty and has become a kind of almost a geopolitical pawn to be played by the tripartite powers. And so what we're seeing in Syria is not the same thing as war as it was in 2013 or 2017, but we continue to see the conditions for violence, displacement, and the kinds of economic dislocations that we were talking about earlier. In fact, talking about continued violence in Syria, you write in your book, and I quote, there are entrenched interests that have developed over the course of the conflict and the continued misery and poverty induced by the war will continue to incentivize violence and criminality. One of the interesting things that I think has happened in Syria is that as people... um, as people figured out how to cope during conflict, they had to rely extensively on networks of violence and networks of armed groups that were able to move products from one place to another, that were able to smuggle people, that were able to forge documents, these sorts of things. And I think that what happened was 
that this created the conditions for the emergence of a conflict elite, of an elite that had made money, that had made profits, that had opportunities that were directly related to the war. So to give you one example, one thing that we've seen in Syria is as many of the business people have left the country. I mean, we're talking many of the the big, small, middle business people in Syria over since 2011 have left the country. And the, many of those who stayed were put under sanctions. And so they were really uh, circumscribed in their ability to kind of pay for things, to import, to export. And what happened is they started relying on what we, these like nobodies, these business people who did not have a lot of assets, did not really have big companies, did not have, were not major players in the Syrian economy prior to the war. They started cultivating these elites to come in and play this sanctions-busting role. And, and these elites came in and they effectively served as intermediaries between the regime and its elite and the outside world. So they were able to import, they were able to get contracts, they were able to uh, make payments, do all of those things that the big fish were no longer able to do. And then over time, they would be put on sanctions, uh, under sanctions and so on and so on. So it, this process kept kind of happening and now you have a huge class of business people who serve this role as intermediaries in the conflict that are now um, trying to get into the formal economy, trying to participate in reconstruction. They are, we see them now on the boards of companies, on the boards of holding companies. We see them on the boards of banks, on the boards of the chambers of commerce and industry. And you've had that kind of turnover throughout the economy. And then, of course, there's the smuggling networks that do everything from tax populations, you know, set up checkpoints to raiding, raiding aid convoys to make money. And so all of these different centers of gravity, of power, emerge throughout the conflict. And I think it'll be really difficult to kind of, you know, unmoor them to that, unmoor them to violence. Samir, when you're discussing Syrians' authoritarian peace in your book, uh, you basically characterize it as, this is quote-unquote, better than conflict peace. And basically you're saying that it promises to deliver reduced violence and regime continuity. And you mentioned this earlier, there are no political reforms or political transformations envisioned in Astana process, is there? No. I mean, nothing of substance that we would consider to be a concession to the political opposition. So there are very few things that are included in Astana that will not further entrench the power of the regime. I mean, we know that there's been, you know, this kind of insistence on a secular constitution by the Russians and there are, you know, minor things here and there. But in terms of how power is distributed within the country, all of these changes do not affect that question of power distribution. The municipal or the local elections that had happened in Syria, I said earlier it was a few months ago, it's possible it was longer than that, but fairly recently the local elections had taken place in accordance with a constitutional amendment that was passed during the conflict. And the idea was, at least in the kind of hopes and dreams of, of some people, was that the, the local elections would provide 
the space, if not now, in the long term for the creation of power centers that could oppose the regime. And not oppose the regime in the sense of creating new conflict or anything like that, but oppose the regime in the sense of being able to spend money autonomously from the regime to elect people and so on and so on. So it was this kind of backdoor way to democracy. And I know that many Syrian political opposition people were kind of talking about the generation ahead, you know, using these local elections as a way to create power autonomous from the regime for the next 20 years, 25 years, things of that nature. But the kind of core governance questions of, say, you know, revenues and how you acquire them, how you spend them, these sorts of things, they, they're they not really addressed in a way that threatens the regime's power. And so I think that it might be too early to tell, or it might be the case in my kind of cynical reading of the political changes that are coming out of Astana, that they're mostly cosmetic. Because if we accept that that political changes coming out of Astana are going to be progressive or democratic, then we also have to accept that that's coming out of a process led by three regimes that are not democratic and progressive, uh, which is Turkey, Russia and Iran. One other player that we should talk about is uh, the U.S. Mm. You argue that the current U.S. administration has effectively ceded its ground to Russia and the Astana process. You wrote... As in the case with the Obama administration's selective engagement in Syria to combat ISIS and ignore the regime, the Trump administration has similarly taken measures to shore up the regime and enforce Russian designs for Syria. Yeah, so I think that there, to some extent, is continuity between the Obama and Trump administrations. Now, let's ignore Trump's tweets and whatnot about Syria, about withdrawing and all these things. And the continuity is in these kind of very limited American interest in Syria. So we know that the Americans never had regime change in mind. If it happened, it happened, that they were never kind of politically or militarily committed to it, that effectively what they were committed to was a kind of uh, stalemate on the battlefield. And that's why they supported some armed groups, but not a lot. They supported the opposition in some ways, but not in other ways, that they actually were in many ways tried to maintain the the political and military stalemate that existed in the country. And when the Russian intervention broke that stalemate, I think that the Americans were able to kind of re-articulate their interests in Syria in a broader regional sense. So now the United States has, I think, anywhere between 12 and 19 military bases in Syria that we don't really know that much about. And those military bases are connected to this, you know, mysterious, never-ending war on terror, war on ISIS, war on who knows what. And I think that the American interests became not in the preservation or the whatever of the Syrian regime. I think that's kind of irrelevant to them to some extent, but rather the continued presence of the American military in order to launch regional attacks and to have a regional presence. And I think that that was ultimately compatible with Russian interests. And I think what we're seeing in the country, or what we're seeing in terms of U.S. policy is a complete kind of indifference in a way to what happens inside of Syria. And you see this in a kind of really crude way, you know, the president of the United States tweeting how awful it is to 
what's happening in Idlib as if he's just some sort of observer, you know, just watching what's going on. And also as if his own military has not contributed to immense civilian suffering in Syria with near daily attacks since 2013-14. I mean, we, we can't forget what role the American military played in the destruction of Raqqa and indeed in surrounding areas. And so I think that, again, this is what I was referring to earlier in terms of the compatibility of Russian and American interests in Syria. I think the American interests are are more regional. I think that there's a momentum in the American military industrial complex to have bases around the world. I mean, this is why we have so many bases and launching pads and all these uh, strange names that they use to describe the American military presence throughout the world. But I think that's been important. And I think that the American military did not want to give that up. And they found a way through agreement with the Russians inside of Syria to maintain that presence in the country. And I think that all of those other questions, democracy and the regime and Assad and Idlib and all these things, they're irrelevant, I think, to the Americans at this point. Well, this may be a good place to discuss the Kurdish question in Syria, since we are mm. talking about the Astana peace process and also the presence of the United States troops in Syria. Can you talk about what you call differential and unequal incorporation of Syria's Kurds into the Syrian state, which was an important feature of Syrian politics? up until the 2011 uprising. And the reason I ask that is for us to have a sort of a backdrop to the Kurdish disaffection and the Kurdish demands. How likely is it that a post-conflict Syrian authority can incorporate Kurdish autonomy into the larger political body in ways that satisfies Kurdish political demands? That's a great question. So I think we have to think about it first in terms of how the regime dealt with all opposition movements. And that was to atomize the movements, to create kind of individuals and not parties. So you had Kurdish individuals who would oppose the regime. You had, you know, oppositionists as people, not as kind of movements. And I think that the general repression directed towards the Syrian Kurds took place within this kind of broader, you know, attempt to atomize society and atomize political movements. And it manifested quite violently in the Syrian Kurdish case because Syrian Kurds were not extended citizenship. They did not have a lot of economic and social rights and had lived in these very kind of precarious ways throughout Syria, not just in the kind of northeastern parts of the country in which there are many, many Syrian Kurdish communities. And I think that when they, so when the uprising happened, Syrian Kurds were really could say as a political movement or as a political unit, even with fragmentations, was not incorporated into the state as such. And so there was no space for the articulation of any Syrian Kurdish interests, whether they were uh, independent of broader Syrian national interests or inclusive of them. And I think that when the uprising happened, there was always this tension between the Syrian Kurdish political interests, which were fragmented, you know, they were never kind of coherent. There are different different elements in competition with each other and that were tied to regional Kurdish interests. And so you had a kind of, if you will, a, a Turkish branch where there was, you know, some Syrian Kurdish groups that were more aligned with Turkish Kurds and some that were more aligned with, you know, the 
Barzani's and other groups inside of Iraqi Kurdistan. They basically represented two completely different political discourses. Exactly. So we should reject the idea that there was Syrian-Kurdish unity in any way. And there's been a lot of debate within the Syrian-Kurdish community about how to and whether to deal with the Syrian opposition, whether their interests are national or ethnic or, you know, these kind of ethno-nationalist interests. Do we deal with the regime? Do we not? Do we deal with the Americans? Do we not? I mean, there really was a lot of debate within the Syrian Kurdish community. And there was always this tension between the larger Syrian political opposition. And in part, that had to do with this history of Kurdish exclusion from from Syrian politics. It also had to do with the ways in which I think Syrian Kurds saw themselves not incorporated into the visions of the Syrian opposition, you know, as like kind of an afterthought. And so there were these kind of fragmented interests that were at play in the Syrian Kurdish community. And, And nevertheless, that said, we did see a kind of major rise in military and political power of the Syrian Kurdish community that was expressed in Rojava and then the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. And we should distinguish between what the Western perception of that project and its reality. So the Western perception of the project is of some anarcho-communist haven where everyone ruled and was happy and it was democratic and so on. And I think the reality is that there was a tremendous amount of repression that was marshaled not just against Syrian Arabs, but Syrian Kurds, in order to realize these projects. And I think that we should not confuse the attempt to create these kind of liberatory spaces or these progressive spaces with the actual, like, with the actual politics on the ground. And I think that a lot of people in the West were enamored with this idea of a kind of a narco-communist heaven in northeastern Syria, but I think the reality is quite different. And what happened, militarily at least, in the Syrian Kurdish kind of political landscape was that they were on the front lines of the fight against ISIS. And for that reason, became natural, if not temporary, partners of the United States military inside of Syria. And what we've seen, I mean, we're in 2019 now, what we've seen is this kind of really strong ties between Syrian Kurdish and American military interests. And we've seen the fraying of those now. And I think that in the same way that the armed groups who are in Idlib could rely on Turkish political and military cover, I think the Syrian Kurds believe that the Americans would play the same role. And I I simply don't think that that's the case. Like, I don't think that if there is a movement now to military confrontation in the Syrian Kurdish areas, I don't believe that the United States is going to risk its agreements or its understandings with Russia in order to save the Kurds. And what that means is, and this is what I was trying to think about in terms of the authoritarian peace, what it means is that any Syrian Kurdish political interests that emerge in the context of the conflict are unlikely to be integrated, whether it's through the constitutional amendments or anything of the sort, into the federal structure of Syria after the conflict. Samer, what we are witnessing today is that most observers have set their sights on the coming reconstruction period as the next phase of Syria's conflict. 
In your book, you also raise two questions about the emerging reconstruction program while offering a critique of its central features. Can you talk about that? Mm. So when we speak of reconstruction, the assumption is that there will be an externally financed, externally led process you know, to recreate uh, social and political institutions in the country. So there will be constitutional changes, there will be changes to the parliament, there will be changes to electoral laws, and you know, we'll rebuild hospitals, we'll rebuild schools, and all of these things. So if we think of any country that suffered from either disaster or war in the last 25 years, we can imagine what Syrian reconstruction may look like. Now, the assumptions that people make about Syrian reconstruction are really divorced from the reality in the sense that all of those other examples that we've seen in the last 20, 25 years, whether it's a tsunami or war or whatever, the governments in power uh, or even the regimes, depending on, uh, on the case, were governments that had relations and were friendly with the quote-unquote international community. So the donors, the financiers, the predominantly Western countries, uh, countries of the global north, did not seriously question the legitimacy of these governments and thus had no problem funneling money and aid through governments. And we don't have that in Syria. You have a regime that has remained in power that virtually all of the donor countries have labeled illegitimate. Virtually all of the donor countries' governments have said that the leader, the president, should be removed through political transition. And all of the political demands of the donor countries from 2011 to 2019 have not been realized, even the most simple kind of political demands. And so there's this conundrum now, this dilemma of whether and how Syrian reconstruction should be funded if the government in power is not a government that is seen as legitimate by the major donor countries? And the answer to that question, the way in which donor countries have gotten around this dilemma, is to focus on humanitarian relief, to focus on humanitarian aid, to think about ways in which reconstruction cannot benefit the regime. And this is the way in which they kind of discursively and in terms of policy work their way around the dilemma. So that's one side of the coin. The other side is that we have to ask what visions of reconstruction are inside of Syria. What does the regime itself see as as reconstruction? I think when we ask that question, a very different picture emerges. On the one hand, all of these questions of rehabilitating schools and hospitals and whatever and having comprehensive national programs of reconstruction, that's simply not on offer in Syria. It's simply not something that the government is talking about. Reconstruction is not seen in a kind of comprehensive national and generational way, which I think that we should be thinking of reconstruction as something that is achieved over one or two generations. That's simply not what's happening in the country. If you talk to people that are in the country or who are based in the region, what they will tell you, or at least what they're telling me, is that the government is very much focused on rebuilding certain key areas. So there's a geographic concentration and also demonstrating that there is kind of movement in the economy through the creation of malls, through the creation of uh, new homes and 
and, and things of that nature. So you have a really urban-focused reconstruction that is concentrated in creating kind of new housing and new infrastructure. On the other hand, there's really no reflection on the part of the regime on how to finance any of this. I mean, that's the really interesting thing. So there's this idea that, okay, you know, let's just build a bunch of stuff and that constitutes reconstruction. We don't need to be thinking about this kind of rehabilitating the national healthcare system or the national education system. Let's just build things in the urban areas. On the other, there's not really a kind of understanding of how to pay for any of this. There's an assumption that the money will just come from its regional allies. There's no master plan for Syrian reconstruction. I mean, many people in the West look at this Law 66, which is essentially a kind of land grab law, you know, they look at these things and say, well, this is the cornerstone of reconstruction. That's actually not the case. Well, talk no, about that. Actually, this yeah. is an important feature, this yeah. issue of property confiscation. Yeah. So if you talk to most Syrian analysts who work in the country or in the region, they will tell you that the major problem now in terms of property is valuation, is the way in which laws are being created now to undervalue property, which facilitates their expropriation by the state. So Syrian property laws are very complicated, very, very, very complicated. So establishing ownership is very difficult. Establishing value is very difficult. Establishing the legality of exchange has become very difficult because the regime has annulled all exchanges in opposition-held areas. So, for example, if I sold you a piece of property in Aleppo, in 2014, when it was under opposition control, the government has annulled those transfers. And so it creates confusion in ownership. It creates confusion in, in the kind of legality of transfer. And it creates these conditions essentially for the undervaluing of land that then private or public interest can expropriate. You also have in Syria something that I think is akin to a process of social erasure, where the legal identities of people are being totally erased. And so in these former opposition-held areas, there are these decrees that are being, uh, decrees perhaps not the right word, it's like um, the Minister of Finance is publishing the names of individuals who are now subject to laws that don't allow them to have bank accounts, own property, go to school, things of that nature. So they're essentially like, deleting or erasing the identities of Syrians, some Syrians in these former opposition areas. And so this is also going to create immense confusion in the property system in Syria, because now I might have my name, for example, on a piece of property, but I'm not allowed to have a bank account. I'm not allowed to own the property. And so it's much more comprehensive than these big picture land grabs that are happening. I mean, it's very, it's very much on a micro level. It's tied to eliminating Syrian legal identities, erasing Syrian legal identities. Uh, it's actually much worse than we think it is. If, if Law 66 is the only thing we're worried about, some because Law 66 actually, what it does is creates big geographic zones, big land areas to say, okay, you know, these five blocks, it used to be informal housing, now we're going to expropriate it and, and take it. And that's problematic and that is destructive in many ways but it's also not the only thing the regime is doing to expropriate land but in terms of policy so there isn't you know some 
grand land policy. It's all these small things that are happening and, and they're producing this effect. In terms of a grand policy in 2016, it's, you know, it's quite amazing that nobody talks about this. But in 2016, the regime declared that its new economic strategy for reconstruction was something called the National Partnership. And the National Partnership was not a series of targeted policies, and this is sort of what I'm talking about in terms of Reconstruction, was not a series of policies aimed at education or healthcare or infrastructure, but an approach to Reconstruction that centralized public-private partnerships as the way to achieve Reconstruction goals. So they didn't actually set any goals. They didn't say, okay, we want to create, say, 100 new schools by 2020. None of these specific Reconstruction goals. What they said was, in order to rebuild these schools, we are going to do so through public-private partnerships. And what that strategy essentially does is open up the Syrian economy to external capital, to external investment. And they will create opportunities, say, okay, we need to build schools and operate them. And in exchange for building and operating the schools, we will give these companies the land. I mean, this is the public part of the public-private partnership. This is sort of the discussion we had earlier about the Iranian commercial interests taking on industrial roles, productive roles, taking over control of land. This is all happening through public-private partnerships, that the Syrian government may or may not expropriate land or may transfer existing land or assets, factories to private interests in exchange for those private interests operating them. So this solves the government's financial issue. You know, they don't have money to pay for these things. And so what they're essentially doing is trying to create these, quote unquote, opportunities for public-private partnerships that allow external capital to come in, external economic interests to come in and invest in the country. So it's really haphazard. It's not even goal-oriented. It's not even focused on one or many sectors. It's simply a strategy. You know, we are going to get to our reconstruction goals through this. And what's happening is going to be a massive transfer of assets and resources from the Syrian public to private interests that are predominantly regional and not Syrian. Samir Aboud is an associate professor of historical and political studies at Arcadia University. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir about his new book, Syria, Hotspots in Global Politics. You can listen to an extended version of this interview on our SoundCloud and iTunes pages at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com.